Now, and even saying that, the car ride down to this class, I'm sobbing. I'm sitting in this class sort of like disconnected from the class half the time because my husband just died. And I have four kids at home, six and under. But I'm going to this class. I'm taking these tangible steps and moving forward. So I think whatever that looks like, you know, for different people, if it's pursuing a new hobby, if it's meeting with a friend for dinner, just getting out of the house, putting your makeup on, doing your hair, like whatever movement forward you can pursue, that's, I think to me, how you rise up out of that wallowing and begin to live again. You're listening to the Reframing Ministries podcast, providing help, hope, healing, and humor for people walking through pain. Here's our host, Colleen Swindoll Thompson. Hi, everyone. It's Colleen with Reframing Ministries. I am so excited to introduce to you someone that is a remarkable individual, and she will speak into the places that we are feeling tired of transition, struggling with mental health, struggling to make sense of the world that is going on around us, but also what's going on in us. And we're going to talk to her, talk with her today about this fabulous book blended with grit and grace and girl, there's a lot of grit and grace in there, isn't there? There is. And thank you so much for having me today. And I'm excited. You're welcome. Well, I'm going to let everyone, I want y'all to know Jessica is an author, a speaker, a podcast director or interviewer, um, mother of nine, eight, well, (laughs) eight, yep. (laughs) One is in heaven. And that was so important to include. And one son has profound, profound disabilities. Um, she is a producer and founder of the Lucas project, which is a nonprofit Mm -hmm. Um, organization that provides recognition, resources, and respite for special needs families. So I want to, can I come to that too? (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Um, Your first book was featured on the Today Show, the Huffington Post, and in the Daily Mail, and you had pretty much Beauty from Ashes. It's a memoir story of your past and and history. This new book, and you've already signed a contract for another one, is the rest of the story as we know it today. I'm going to start by asking you, fill us in on where you started Grit and Grace. Where I started Grit and Grace? Um, Well, we moved to rural Tennessee in 2013. And that's basically what this book is, is a collection of stories after we decided to basically run away from our life and go to the middle of nowhere with our newly blended family, which at the time was seven children and mom and dad. We had just lost our spouses to brain cancer. And we just wanted to kind of hack out a life for ourselves, away from all the noise, away from all the opinions, away from, you know, when we got married, there were 22 grandparents. I jokingly said to you, I have three mother-in-laws, like, that's a lot. (laughs) And so instead of like dealing with it, like rational people, we just ran away to the middle of nowhere. 
And we bought a huge old house that needed a complete gut job on 30 acres of land on the Tennessee River. And we just, you know, lived the simple life for the next six years, which as we discovered really isn't all that simple. Um, had another baby in the process. But it's just our stories of living off the land, blending our family, adopting each other's children, grief, remarriage, miscarriage, special needs, just the whole kit and caboodle thrown into a book. And I, it's not like a how-to book. It's just me sharing what worked for us, what didn't work, our joys, our failures. And I hope that people who read it can just consider it like a companion piece to their own struggles. And I think above all else, get hope out of it. Um, yes. It's not just for blended families. It's about, you know, rising above whatever life throws at you and allowing a time frame where you kind of wrestle with it and question God and rage and then making a conscious effort to rise up out of the muck and move even baby steps, but move towards something life-giving. And like my motto, just keep living. I mean, that's all we can do with this one crazy life that we've been given. Yeah. And that's how I try to live my life. Well, let's, let's go back for a second, because what I didn't mention was the fact that you had already lost a spouse to brain cancer with four children. Is that right? Mm -hmm. And then your husband, your current husband, he had lost his spouse to brain cancer with three children. Mm -hmm. And so there was a bonding of, we've gone through this medical nightmare together and there's so much to talk about with that. And I love how you started the uh, beginning of the book. It says in the beginning, there was a couple, this pair of lovebirds named Jessica <laughs> and Ryan <laughs> flitting about in bliss and romance. And something hit them one day, like a nosedive straight into a freshly windexed window. I loved that. Bam. The couple was stunned silly as they took off the rose colored blinders, unruffled their fe feathers and saw everyone else saw what everyone else was seeing. And that was reality. So as you stepped into reality, walked down the aisle with Ryan, five months into it, you're living this life, trying to blend everything along with grief that was involved from the past. Mm -hmm. How in this world did that start to unravel you both? Because that was the a new beginning from an ending you'd walked through thinking, okay, we've tackled the hardest stuff in life, not ever anticipating the new stuff that you would tackle that you would talk about in the book. Mm -hmm. As you started to unravel, were you thinking, this is not what I expected, God, what am I going to do? I don't know that it was, this is not what I've expected, God, but wow, I was really naive jumping into a blended family. Um, this is a lot more than I bargained for. And I would say those first couple of years, because our children were all so young, when we got married, they, they were seven under seven. So they meshed very, very well. I mean, all of a sudden they have all these new playmates and we're like, oh gosh, this kid thing is easy. We can't believe how they've all blended and meshed and gotten along. And it was more about me and Ryan. Like all of a sudden I have this brand new husband who is nothing like the man I had been married to for 10 years. And he has this brand new wife who is nothing like the woman he had been married to for 10 years. And not only that, like, I feel like I had done a lot of my grieving because my late husband's cancer journey was three years long. Right. So by the time he died, I had kind of moved through those stages of grief. 
Ryan's late wife's cancer journey was only four months long from diagnosis to death. Mm. So in essence, I was kind of a giant band-aid for him for a while, like, cause he just didn't address his grief and kind of in, I don't like stereotype, but typical male fashion just wanted to fix the problem, which was, I needed a wife. I need a mother. I love this woman. Let's do it. Um, we should have gotten some therapy, but we did not uh, for about the first year and a half. And then when we finally landed in a therapist's office, <laughs> we had a lot cool. to work through. Right. Um, but even in that, we discovered that so much of it wasn't even about us, but it was about unresolved issues from our childhood that we were bringing to our marriage. So um, yeah, I went, I'm a very cut and dry person. And when I made the decision to marry Ryan, I wasn't like, trying to back out of that or anything. It, it was what it was, but there, I was super naive in that decision and all the complications that a blended family also holds, you know, as you mesh these two families together. I think there's an unspoken reality that every couple that walks down the aisle has an invisible U-Haul behind them <laughs> and it yes. has all their baggage. And you think, yes. oh, this marriage is a new step. It's a new chapter, not realizing that that U-Haul is also going with them to that new house or apartment. And I right. came across something I thought that was very, very good on grief because grief is one of those things that it is so uncharted. It is so um, it, a trigger will happen and you're instantly back, like you said, in that mm-hmm. hospital room fighting cancer or on that table, finding that Lucas is not like the doctor saying he won't make it abort. And you didn't. And you believed, which doesn't change the reality that you're raising a profoundly disabled young man. Mm-hmm. But but you pressed on. And in grief, you write, grief shows up in the strangest ways. I can be completely at peace. And one thought will emerge out of nowhere. Suddenly I'm back at hospice with Jason, just like I was explaining. You said, um, sometimes we deal with grief in such unlikely ways. We eat a whole bag of Cheetos been there, done that in one afternoon, maybe investigating in a full blown argument, investing in a full blown argument with Ryan over who's going to wash the kids tonight maybe popping a few Advil for the migraine or the back pain that won't go away because of stress, drinking that extra cocktail or two or three, going to bed at eight, not wanting to get out of bed. I mean, you're listing things that we have dealt with this year in the pandemic. People are, how do I even get out of bed? I don't even know how to move forward. And there's grief and loss in isolation. There's so much that we have lost. So you also write, and I'm going to ask you this question. Grief is the strange and unpredictable force that must be recognized given its proper place, like a river that rages at times and then calmly flows at others. The boat we cling to in the water bends at its will. The boat provides safety and perhaps sometimes captivity. How did you go from captivity because it can capsize us mm-hmm. to walking through those steps. Like you mentioned, grief is a very personal journey for everyone. And I can only share what worked for me, Mm -hmm. but for me, it was conscious movements forward. So that can sound kind of vague, but for example, after Jason's funeral, I was driving home by myself. I had had probably 50 people offer to come stay with me or comfort me. And I just wanted to be alone with my children. And I pulled into my driveway 
And I looked down at my hand and I noticed my wedding ring and I knew that I was no longer married. So for me, it was removing this object that presented or represented a lie to me on my finger. And for me, that was movement forward, recognizing in that moment, you are not married anymore. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the movement even that spurred me and allowed me to pursue love again shortly thereafter was I had faced the fact that my husband had died. He was in heaven. I loved what I had with him, but it was no longer my reality. And I wasn't willing to live in a false narrative, just me. That might not work for other people. Um, so you, even, you obviously said, I'm not going to live in a false narrative. I'm going to be in reality. Yes. Okay. And then even a week after his funeral, I had signed up for a master's degree class at the, the local university. I was working towards my master's degree. And in I the midst of all of that? I had been working on my master's degree for like eight Amazing. years. <laughs> so, Amazing. Um, and I had com- contemplated... Um, uh, not going to that class, canceling it. Mm -hmm. Um, and I thought, you know what, I need to continue moving forward. I have to keep living for my children, for myself. I want this master's degree. I have two years left before my timeframe runs out. So I'm going to get my butt out of bed and go to this class. I'm going to hire a babysitter for the kids. And I'm going to do this movement forward. Now, and even saying that, the car ride down to this class, I'm sobbing. I'm sitting in this class sort of like disconnected from the class half the time because my husband just died. And I have four kids at home, six and under. But I'm going to this class. I'm taking these tangible steps and moving forward. So I think whatever that looks like, you know, for different people, if it's pursuing a new hobby, if it's meeting with a friend for dinner, just getting out of the house, putting your makeup on, doing your hair, like whatever movement forward you can pursue. That's, I think to me, how you rise up out of that wallowing and begin to live again. You know, in the book, Atomic Habits, I came across the, the, one of the suggestions is don't look at 90% progress toward that goal. It's a 1% progress. Mm -hmm. 1% a day, just 1%. And that's what you did. I think the universal truth is you, you held on to your identity. Yes. I'm wanting to pursue this. And this is the goal that I, that I have, and I will choose. So making that choice, because we all have a choice, whether we believe it or not, we have the choice, wake up today and take it one minute at a time or stay in bed. That's Mm -hmm. a choice. And then just being honest, I sobbed all the way down there, but I showed up. I made appointments with people. Those are so practical and can so get lost when we are saturated with grief, but you mm-hmm. chipped away at the stone until you were able to get to the root because you also mentioned a lot of stuff goes back to childhood. And mm-hmm. in that process, how did you allow those things to emerge? Childhood stuff. Yeah. Because like you said, we can, we can, we can medicate our grief. We can avoid it. We can do a thousand different things. And yet what you really were grieving were things that 
or in your soul, taking up space. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you didn't want that in there. You wanted to fully love Ryan. You wanted to right. fully be present. Um, well, EMDR helped a lot with that. Did it um, really? Okay. It did. I um, wasn't even aware of some of the stuff that was in my soul and that brought a lot of it to the surface and recognizing, I think too, that our histories do play a role in who we are as adults and even play a role in who we choose to marry because we're like mirroring our issues through this person. So once I understood that and understood that Ryan wasn't like innately an evil person on this particular day because he was driving me crazy. He was mirroring stuff back to me that I needed to deal with and, and with him too, vice versa. You know, he, he has stuff in his childhood that he was sort of taking out in the new marriage, but it wasn't about the new marriage or even his previous marriage. It was about unresolved issues that we both had to face and, you know, without getting, too deep into the nitty gritty of all of that. Um, I think once you begin to face those things, that's when you can move forward into healing and wholeness in your, in all your relationships in life with your children, with your friends, with your spouse and everything. But until you address some of that stuff, I don't think you can be whole. So therefore you can't be whole in any of your relationships. That is such a great point. I was just reading one of John Eldridge's Uh, books that he recently wrote. And he talks about loving a dog that was so precious to him that passed away. And then they got another dog and he loved the dog, but he couldn't love him quite as much because there's fear. Mm -hmm. And then that dog passes. And he said, more and more, my heart got filled with the sorrows of my past, which then took away my ability to fully love. And you mentioned PTSD, which is part of caregiving, which is part of trauma, which is part of this world as we know it, because trauma is pervasive. Um, So you chose to unpack your heart, which there should not be any stigma about that. That is the best, most healing thing you can do is reach out and say, my heart's packed and I need to get this stuff out so I can fully live and love and receive what God has for me. That, ha- that had to be hard work, but good work. Yeah. And I think our experience is actually a little di- a little bit different than what John Eldridge talks about. I think having loved and lost a spouse so young, mm. we now embrace every moment we have together and recognize that it can be, you know, it can be gone in an instant. So we do really try to live each day as if it could be our last. And we we don't take each other for granted. We really prioritize time together and date nights and family time. And because when you've gone through that, I mean, that's a, that's a hard lesson to learn, but I think we've learned it. Well, and it's amazing how you have prioritized family. You guys have the sit down meals. I love that you hate laundry because I have a (laughs) I have a hate issue with laundry as well, but the crunchy towels too, (laughs) or, you know, whatever's going to dry you off. If it's last week's socks, you know, dry off with last week's socks. The fact fact that you were able to prioritize. So you and Ryan came together and said, okay, look, we've got this, this just Ryan, just plus the mess, which is your site, by the way, Mm -hmm. that I love go and see it. Everyone. Was that just 
an evolutionary process or was it very purposeful, very um, direct? How, how did you do that? How did we prioritize time together? No, because I loved that as well, but I won't touch okay. on that until later. Okay. Just with managing all the kids and all the moving parts. Oh, goodness. Um, well, how we long do we into, have? Right. We went into the marriage understanding that we we had never had an opportunity to date without children. I mean, we dated with seven children and then we were married immediately with seven children. And we recognized very early on that our marriage would never work if we didn't prioritize time together. So it wasn't a ton of time. But I mean, for us, what that's looked like is just walking together in the morning, praying together, and then going on a weekly date night and then prioritizing like a vacation once a year together. But yes, with so many moving parts, again, I think our answer to that was running away to the middle of nowhere because it became so overwhelming with all the opinions and all the desires that we couldn't, we just couldn't say yes to everything or we would have drowned. So it was, let's get the heck out of here. Let's go hack out a life away from everybody. But we needed that time to blend our family and to become a family. And it was really difficult, but it did what it was meant to do. And I don't wish we we didn't do it. You know, it, it served its purpose. And now we're back in Michigan pursuing community again. I think, um, in fact, I sent a text to my husband. I'm like, they have a weekly date night. They get away once a year. They take a sabbatical. He's like, wow, (laughs) great couple. And I'm like, hand, hand. (laughs) Because we have teenagers too, who can babysit. Um, and you know, we hire them to watch and when I say a date night, I mean, we're talking two hours, you know, two or three hours, like getting away, eating our food, coming home. So, but it's, but it's without the, the, who, who's going to order what and the yelling across yes. the table. And then Lucas, who's nonverbal and 16 right. and wants to be involved. So he screams, I mean, right. that's maddening. So you, yeah. you truly made it a priority, which tells everybody as who are, who are caregivers and that number uh, what is it? 24% now, but it's supposed to triple by 2050. Right. We have to choose to prioritize that time together Mm -hmm. or it will get sucked away. And I have learned that just in falling apart physically and emotionally at times when, you know, Colleen, you put every other thing in front of prioritizing the person God's made you to be Mm -hmm. and to become, um, speaking of Ryan, I'm sorry. Speaking of Lucas, tell me a little bit about Lucas. Lucas is 16, um, just had his last day of school today. So we're a little unnerved, Um, but he will have summer school this year for the first time in seven years. So we're very excited about that. Um, He was born with hydrocephalus. He had a stroke in utero when he was 20 weeks old and we were told to abort him. Um, There was no hope. And we decided to put his life in the Lord's hands and just have faith that God's will would be done. And he was born, um, came out of me screaming with life and thank God. Right. And he spent two weeks in NICU and then they handed us our baby and said, good luck. We were like, how do we go from like, our baby's going to die to here you go. And we went home and, um, he, he has profound, uh, and complex needs, Um, He's incontinent. He's primarily nonverbal. He needs help and assistance in every aspect of his life. Um, 
limited sight, limited mobility, but he's pretty happy for the most part um, up until I would say about puberty. And then we sort of saw shift occur and in all kids that happened. Yes. Became more aggressive. Um, We've had to pursue some medication, which has been very helpful. And I would just say he's turning 17 in August and my biggest fear now is just looking to his future um, and just trying to trust the Lord has a plan for him and for us. And I don't know how much longer I can physically care for him without some major repercussions and just wrapping my heart and mind around that too. Like releasing him at some point, God willing to a residential To residential um, yeah yeah what you know when when does that occur and how does it occur and there's just a lot of unknowns right now and I think if somebody could just say to me even at 25 years old there will be this perfect residential facility and they'll be filled with godly loving people who love him and I'd be like okay you yeah. know that works but yeah. just not knowing like right having no idea if what his future looks like. I think that's where a lot of my grief comes into play. Which by the way, that's the number one concern for all caregivers is what's, what is going to happen? I love that you talk about being afraid and your definition of fear, which we all have different definitions of fear, but the fact that you are trying to harness your imagination saying, you know what, Lord, he is yours first. And we don't know, as we've learned through the pandemic, we don't know what tomorrow will hold. That is the exact same thing that's true with our loved ones that we care for. We don't know. And it's a conscious choice, just like taking care of in counseling, taking care of those issues to choose to keep moving forward, knowing Mm -hmm. God, you have a plan. And also the fact I loved that you wrote, you love him. And the fact that he's changed your life in so many ways, what are some of those areas where you are so thankful that he is in your life? Well, he's humbled me like nothing has. I mean, he, to, to have an individual that you care for on a daily basis that literally needs you in every aspect of life. You know, I, as an author and I've got some pretty exciting things on the horizon, which I don't know where they're going to go or how God is going to use my story or, you know, anything, but to then have to continue to rise every morning and continue to put clothes on my grown child, to feed him bite by bite, to bathe him, to help him in every aspect of life. Um, It's, it's humbling, but I think that's a gift that I'm thankful for too, because it does keep me on, on my knees. It does keep my head from blowing up. It does keep me like in the nitty gritty of what this life is truly all about. And it is serving the least of these. It's being the hands and feet of Christ. And I don't necessarily want to do this forever, but if I'm called to do it forever with him, then my only job is to walk in obedience. And I do believe that there's blessing in obedience and that the Lord will pave away. Yeah. One way or another. It was interesting. Um, my dad's told this story before, but years ago, uh, he and Johnny Erickson Tata were at an event together and her assistant at the time had to get up and leave the restroom. And while she was gone, their dinner came and she looked over at him and she said, Chuck, would you mind feeding me? 
and he, he cannot tell that story. And I can't tell it without tears because literally when we are stripped of our ability to provide what comes naturally to everybody else, mm-hmm. that's humbling and humiliating yet so freeing to be able to say, I need help. And for you, it's being the hands and feet of Jesus, washing his, literally washing his whole body, washing mm-hmm. Lucas, dressing him because he's vulnerable and you love mm-hmm. him. I believe that's a very sacred space. And with Jonathan, the times that I have to step in and do what nobody expects or would even begin to understand, I'm like, you know, this is holy ground. It this is. is, this is a God calling and Lord, help me steward what you put on my plate. Well, yeah, I have a big sign that hangs in Luke's room that says, this is holy work. Just I love that. Remind myself, this is the holiest work that you can do this side of eternity. All this fun stuff that, I mean, the books, the documentaries, the nonprofit work, this is what being a human being is really all about is caring for one another. And I need that daily reminder (laughs) right in smack dab in my face. Yep. What would you suggest would help for the church in general? Because as you have been frustrated, as I have, there's a lack of understanding. It's almost like you have to experience it in order Mm -hmm. to get it. And yet the reality is we have kids that need Jesus comfort and love, whether they're typical, typical or different, whatever that may be. What suggestions do you have that you would like to say, if you could sit down with a pastor or a board or a group of lay leaders, what would help? I have plenty of suggestions. (laughs) Have that a girl. I do too. (laughs) My heart beats for caregivers. So that's where my suggestions come in. But what I've suggested in the past is we have all these small groups, like every church around the entire country has these small groups. I don't understand why these small groups can't surround a special needs family within their community and be church to that family. Adopt bring them. meals. Yes. Bring meals, provide respite, give them fun gift cards, give them a date night gift card. Like that seems like a really easy thing. And I think churches are so bent on getting these special needs families to church, which is great. Like I want more church options as well. Like with Luke, almost 17 years old, there's very little out there that works for our family, but maybe let's work on like going into all the world and finding these families and bringing church to them. And then just another suggestion that as I've been looking around at vacation Bible school options for my younger kids, I'm like, why, why don't we have something like this for for special needs teenagers? Because these kids are sitting at home, bored out of their minds, probably on their iPads all day, every day. They thrive on structure. They thrive on routine. They want to be involved in things. So why can't churches start to do like vacation Bible schools for these kids or just include them? in the vacation Bible school that you already offer, but make exceptions because most of these kids are cognitively way below like what their typical peers are anyway. You know, I know my Lucas cognitively, they say he's at a nine to 12 month old level. Now that's, you know, hard to determine, but he would love to be involved even with like fifth and sixth graders. He would love it. So why can't we make some of these exceptions for these kids and 
just provide some volunteers, one-on-one -on -one volunteers to help out with something like this. And you would be blessing the socks off these families, these kids, and give, you know, provide an opportunity for these kids to have a little bit of Jesus in their lives, you know, throughout the summer and, months. And what I found is it's, it's just so simple and um, play roll the ball. Yes. Um, um, find out what their favorite little game is. Tic-tac-toe. I don't know how many little tic-tac-toe things I've written on a doctor's at the doctor's when you have the little white sheet over the table. I would right. play hangman and tic-tac-toe and draw funny pictures, just whatever. And we know what makes our kids laugh. I'll give you a list. Right. And it's so simple. In fact, Tobin and I last night walked out of an appointment that we had and vacation Bible school was going on and all the jump houses. And what came through my mind was Jonathan saying only three weeks ago, mom, I'm so lonely. Mm -hmm. And I just said, I'm, I know you are. And I'm trying to find that place. I know. So churches, it's not hard. Adopt a family. Help right. And I love your book where you give suggestions that are very gracious, but very simple. Yeah. It's not hard to do. Small groups, adopt a family instead right. of going overseas. Even right. doctors can do missions work with special needs families right. here. So yes, I, I'm with you on that. I think we could just write a big long list of stuff for sure. Um, there's yeah, and there's... And I get it. You know, a lot of people are kind of scared of that kid. Sure. There's I was. So many, yeah, I would be too. Like if I didn't understand Lucas as his mother, like he would probably be a little bit scary to me. He's, he's got some strange mannerisms and, but there are so many other ways that you can surround these families and provide some relief to their lives. And it doesn't even have to necessarily be like babysitting that kid. It can be like simply showing up with a meal, or if you cut hair for a living, show up and offer to like cut the family's hair in the comfort of their home, just to make it easier on them, like cross one thing off their to-do list and, you know, be on your merry way. Yeah. I just am longing to develop a place one day. This is my just passionate dream where it's almost like a Walmart for special needs families, where you have a section where you could find healthcare and a section where moms could just sit down for a while and a section where you could oh. find legal help. I know. Wouldn't that not be fabulous? And it wouldn't I, be going to all the different places, a pharmacy, a haircut place, a place where you can get your nails done if we ever get our nails done. Um, I, but it doesn't seem hard for us because we're living in the day-to-day -day. for the rest of the world. If it's not a money-making business, it's kind of tossed to the side. Mm -hmm. So if any of you are builders and want to give your time to a worthy cause, get a hold of Jess or me. Right. <laughs> we'll give you something to do for sure. Right. Well, I we'll don't put your money to good use. <laughs> exactly. And honestly, there are hardly any places. I know about three in the nation that I would feel very comfortable with, and they've done it so well. Yet, let's just continue to pray. And caregivers, yes. we're praying for you to find places and to cultivate getaways for caregivers that aren't meetings that go through five different seminars. It's, oh. you can go away. And <laughs> yes. <laughs> you want to say anything about that? <laughs> you Yes, we don't need that. We need like a romantic little cottage with our spouse if we're married. And if we're not all by ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> like In fact, I got super worked up a couple of years ago and I was with my son and he said, you know, mom, are you going to be okay? I'm, he was going to drop me off and go meet some friends. 
and the water, I, I was by the ocean, my love language. And I'm like, yeah, I, I really won't be okay. Sure. You're going to be okay by yourself for a few hours by the water. I'm like, yeah, I'll be fine. <laughs> he goes, I think I picked up a different mother. <laughs> and I said, yep, you did. Because yeah. there's no way to have that refreshment and quiet mm-hmm. unless we're taken out of the crazy. Yes. That we live in. Well, Jess, we don't I, need to get up at 9 a.m. to go attend a seminar when we're supposed to be exactly, taking a break. Exactly. I, yeah. I just think a music room, sleep, rest, a massage would be absolutely yes. okay. Um, yes. So we could talk about that for hours. Right. But I, I, I don't want to keep everyone for too long, but I could talk to you for days. I want to wrap up with something that you said that I think is profound. Um, You said everything remains in motion, a continuous movement of death and resurrection, waves upon waves, washing away the brokenness of grief and moving what remains to the shore, natural disasters and despair and divorce and special needs and bereavement, not excluded, an intricate blending of grit and grace. It's involved collectively and individually, ashes to beauty, beauty to ashes. And that's the cycle that we live in. Will you speak to that person who is going through that divorce, facing despair because their child has a mental illness they can't figure out, going through the death of a loved one, coming out of COVID or has faced a natural disaster and is homeless. I mean, there's, there's an endless list of ways God brings us to the end of ourselves. But how have you found hope in those places for people who are watching right this minute? You want me to answer that as I am today, as a 44 year old woman? (laughs) I want you to answer it as honestly and any way you want to answer that. I think what God has taught me in 44 years of life is that he is God and I am not period. So I may not understand everything this side of eternity, but it's only my job to continue moving forward in obedience. And I do believe that there is blessing when we move forward in obedience to what he calls us to do. So I think just understanding that there is a bigger picture at play. Mm -hmm. And if we can just hold on till the almighty flips our page, like we have no idea what's around the corner but we can't give up too soon. You know, we have to continue holding on and having faith and we might not even see the fulfillment of his plan, the side of eternity. Right. But there will be fulfillment one way or another. Is there a verse or a passage that you go to when you are just at the end? Psalm 91. Oh my goodness. I love that one. Yeah. It's so good. Psalm 91, yeah. you guys look it up dive into it. It's so good. What part speaks to you? The whole thing um, about the eagle's wings. And I used to have it memorized, but it's been a while. Um, there's only a, 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 there's only a amount of mental space that we can right, put in there. Right. And I love Job's story too. Um, yes. Just, you know, everything he's been through. And I think that was his realization at the end of it all. And that's where the lesson came for me is I am God and you are not. Mm-hmm period. <laughs> like, and no questions asked, no whys. I love yes. that you wrote that in there. The why question doesn't matter. 
No, it doesn't and you change. Can rage, you can be angry. God can handle all of that. But at the end of the day, coming to a peace and an understanding that he is God and we are not, and we might not understand the whole story. And you're amazing. I just want to thank you for your time in this book. You have a ton of recipes because you love to cook. So I can't wait to try those, even though Good. I probably won't do them very well, but, but you guys seriously check out, check out her book and you can be found at Jess plus the mess. That's a spelled out word plus. So just plus the mess.com. Any other ways people can get a hold of you? I hang out a lot on Facebook and Instagram. I have not been blogging much. Um, but I'm on Facebook. Okay. So check out Facebook, which is right where we are. Right. Just plus the mess. Thanks for taking your time and for just being so real in this. And I will pray Psalm 91 over you from here on out. I'm sure this is not the last time we will talk. No, I sure hope not. I really enjoyed it. And I appreciate your candor as well. It's always nice to find honest people in the world. Well, it's just amazing how life can strip us down to bare bones and all the platitudes don't mean a thing. It's, Mm -hmm. you know what, God, get me through this day. Get me through this moment. Get me through this second. And he does. And he will. Mm -hmm. Not just for you, not just for me, but for every single person watching this, he will get you through. All right, Jess, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you again for joining us today at Reframing Ministries. If you enjoyed this podcast, let us know in the comments on our website. Our desire is to provide biblical help, hope, healing, and humor for people walking through unique and challenging segments in life. And in order to provide for more people, we'd love your support through prayer, sharing this content with friends, and partnered support. Reframing Ministries and Insight for Living Ministries operate entirely and only on your generous gifts and donations. You can partner with us and donate to Reframing Ministries through our website. The Reframing Ministries podcast is a production of Insight for Living Ministries.